double S I double S I double P I Am I crooked letter, crooked letter I crooked letter, crooked letter I humpback, humpback I Am I S S I S S I P P I Who loved spelling Mississippi when you were a kid? I loved it. I loved it. Let's just say that's my season four theme song. (laughs) Today, the day started with opening the windows, burning some lemongrass incense, and listening to an album from 1967, which is Bobby Gentry's Ode to Billy Joe, and there's a song on there called Mississippi Delta that the lyrics go M I double S I double S I double P I, and I can't stop singing it. I got the kids singing it with me. We had to run a little errand, and I was playing this Beck album that I really love and can't remember the name of the album, but there's a song on the album that the lyrics are Don't Let It Go. Don't let it go away. It's a very melancholy song, and Tanner proceeded to add to the song because he's my kid, and that's what us DeVos do. He goes, you could put it in your pocket. (laughs) So that's the big Imolk is here energy in my house. I think living in Los Angeles, Imolk is... To us, Angelinos, what spring equinox is to the rest of y'all. Because when Imolk arrives, we have this kind of strange fall slash winter slash mostly spring-like weather happening. We'll have days where it's very rainy and cold. It's always colder in my house than it is outside. And when I say cold, y'all can laugh at me because, I mean, in the 60s. And then we have days where it's just so sunny and everything is green and the birds are chirping. We have this one bird. I'm very on the fence about this bird because this bird has been getting up before the crack of dawn and waking me up before the crack of dawn with this very specific whistle-like chirp. It reminds me of that little chirp that happens when you turn your car alarm off, but he just keeps going. Chip, 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 chip. It's way more high pitched than that. Chip, 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 chip. <laughs> right outside my bedroom window. And when he first started doing it, I was like, that's so cute. We got a little Disney bird. But now he's been doing it all week long. And I'm like, oh, this isn't going to stop. You're going to wake me up when it's dark every morning with this business? Okay, it almost sounds electronic, like somebody left a beeper. A beeper. (laughs) They don't make beepers anymore. But for old people listening, remember beepers? It sounds like somebody left maybe like a beeper in a drawer. (laughs) I'm so full of it. How am I going to ground down to do an intro properly here to the podcast? I'm facing opposite an altar that I built on when did I build this altar? I built this altar on the new moon and then I kept feeding the altar all the way to the full moon. And on the new moon, we were in Idlewild, in the mountains, in the snow. And I built the altar on this little fireplace in this A-frame atomic cabin in the woods. It's all retro. It's so groovy and cool. And then I disassembled it all and put it in this little box and then brought it home and built, rebuilt the altar in my home and I have been feeding it and my energy has been growing and increasing with it and now it is opposite me where I'm sitting in my office and it's very cool looking but I just keep adding to it and right now it has three cuties on it, those little tiny oranges and I'm going to dip orange pieces tonight in dark chocolate with the kid. We're calling it our magic spell to bring passion and energy to our lives. We are going to be dipping the little cutie pieces, little orange pieces in dark chocolate and then sprinkling them with salt and cayenne pepper and cinnamon. This is a recipe I saw in, I feel like it was Women's Health Magazine maybe? 
I ripped it out of a magazine. I stuck it in this witchy cookbook that I have. And I was like, that's going to be perfect for February. I love February because I really love Imolk, which I primarily celebrate as Groundhog Day. Let's be honest. I'm American. I'm a California girl. And I love the movie Groundhog Day as a spiritual teaching. So really, that's what Imolk ends up meaning to me. But also, I really love Lunar New Year, particularly because the Americana, this outdoor mall where we live, is within walking distance to our house. And it's really gotten us into the rhythm of Lunar New Year because every year they bust out this gigantic lantern and these different decorations, and they decorate every year for Lunar New Year coming off of Christmas time. So it's really easy to get into the vibe of that and... For years, we would do this magic spell that I learned where you roll oranges through your front door on Lunar New Year. You roll them into your house for good luck. So I thought this recipe would make a really fun witchy spell, a witchy spell for rolling in some passion and energy and abundance, good fortune. So we're going to do that tonight. And I just set all the ingredients up on my altar because why not? Why not? The more sensual you can make a spell and the more energy you put into it, I think the better. Gathering the ingredients, looking at the ingredients all laid out, right where this altar is setting, I must pass it, I don't know, 50 times a day because it's in my office. I'm walking back and forth all the time and it's in this section of my office that is undisturbed, so it's kind of perfect for sitting on the floor and doing some meditation, but also I see it when I pass it by and it's kind of a reminder like, ooh, we're going to do a little magic spell tonight. So I'm so hyped up right now. I'm so hyped up right now and I'm kind of rushing this episode through for you because I want this to be an Imolk gift. I want this to be a shadow love gift for Imolk, for Groundhog Day, for Valentine's Day. This is a self-love gift from me and Dr. Jennifer Hill to you. Dr. Jennifer Hill is the guest today. Let me do my official intro before we get too far into the episode. Okay? Okay. Hello! Thanks for joining me for episode 491 of Hippie Witch, Magic for a New Age. My name is Joanna DeVoe, and I am the groovy creatrix behind Kick-Ass Switch, Putting the K in Magic, and Hippie Witch, the show you are listening to right now. I also have a free ebook by that name, Hippie Witch, Peace, Love, and all that good shit, and you can pick up a copy of that at www.joannadevoe.com, where you will also find the show notes for this episode, which will include links to Dr. Jennifer Hill. She is a priestess. She is a psychologist. She is a wise woman who specializes in shadow work. And honest to God, this hour where I got to talk to Jennifer for this interview, it flew by. I was so bummed when it was over because I was like, but, 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 we're just getting started. We're just getting started. So I'm going to link to her. Definitely go over and find her on Twitter and introduce yourself because she's a great person to get into conversation with if you're somebody who's interested in shadow work or you just want to meet a cool witchy woman. I'm also in the show notes going to link to Corvin Designs because Alex Corvin the designer behind Corvin Designs, he made me this incredible poster and it's so beautiful. It feels very Libra-esque to me, but he's such a talented designer and it really touched my heart that he took the time to make this thing for me and that I now have it hanging proudly in my office. So I was hoping you all would go check out his work because he's a very cool witchy dude. And I'm also going to be linking to Nicole PR. If I'm saying her last name correctly, it's P-I-A-R. She created the Spirit Cats Oracle deck, and I have the Spirit Cats Oracle deck, the Spirit Cats calendar, some Spirit Cats stickers, which she sent me, and I love it. 
I sit under my Spirit Cats calendar and it makes me smile when I'm sitting in my little office nook working. And I love the Oracle cards too. And I know so many of you are cat people and Oracle deck reading kind of people. So I thought you might love to check out her work. And then just because I'm so totally full of it today, I feel like I need to make sure that I take the time to thank the very nice people supporting the podcast over on Patreon, especially new patrons, Claire Deenan, Jennifer Hill. Hmm, could that be Dr. Jennifer Hill? I don't know. Victoria, Victoria Wilson-Randall. Hello again, Victoria. Emily Ng. Layla Benton, and I think that's it for now. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, for keeping the lights on, for the kid and I. I hope you all and everyone listening enjoys this episode with Dr. Jennifer Hill. And without any further ado, I'm just going to roll right into it because it happened. It happened today, and I want to make sure that I get this to you at the top of February. Oh, and no, I lie. There is a little tiny bit more ado because another thing that I wanted to get to you at the top of February is a 50% off discount code to two audio journeys that I have. One is called Shadow Love, Return to the Seat of the Soul. That is all about shadow work as framed as a form of self-love or as a path to self-love. It has everything to do with this episode here today and just how I'm always feeling at this time of year. I feel like Imolk, Groundhog Day, it's an invitation. It's an invitation to do a bit of shadow work. And so that is why I wanted to make that discount available for that. And then also I'm doing it for the Queen program which is a big deal because that's the biggest program that I have. I'm feeling the queen energy myself. I'm thinking about self-love. So I just decided to do these two together. We'll call it like a shadow queen, shadow love kind of thing. So for either of these, if you're interested in either of these audio journeys, there will be links in the show notes. And then the discount code at checkout will be February 21 all lowercase, and then the number 21, no spaces, and it should roll 50% off the price before you hit pay. Before you pay me, make sure that it gives you your discount. If it's not giving you the discount, you did not put the discount code in right, and I find it's always just easiest to cut and paste. Cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste. It'll roll 50% off. I hope you all take advantage of that. And now... Without any further ado, here is my interview with the amazing Dr. Jennifer Hill. Hi, Jennifer. Welcome to Hippie Witch. Hey, Joanna. We have kind of made friends on Twitter. Does it feel that way to you, too? Absolutely. We have so much in common. It's eerie sometimes. <laughs> it's awesome. It's really cool to get into conversation with someone on Twitter and then get to drag them onto my podcast. And this has been a long time coming. We've been talking about this for weeks. So this is really fun for me. Yeah, I, I just I've been excited about it for weeks as well. Telling all my friends. <laughs> yay. Yay. OK, so let's 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 tell people what you do. You are very focused on shadow work. You have a business that is centered on shadow work. You talk about shadow work all the time, which is what got my interest. So what is that about? I am a psychologist. I have a doctorate in transpersonal psychology. And my area of expertise is actually Carl Jung. And I am also a pagan, a witch, And I started to notice over the last several years, a lot of people starting to talk about shadow work as a spiritual practice, which I'm here for. I think that's great. However, I did start to notice a lot of dangerous ideas, I guess, floating around on social media where people were advocating a shadow work that kind of led to a self-hatred, self-blaming self-harming mindset. And I said, oh, whoa, hold up. (laughs) We got to do something about this. And so I started writing a book on shadow work for witches and pagans, shadow work for the soul, I call it. 
that instead of focusing on all the ways that you're bad and wrong, shadow work is a journey of becoming conscious and learning to love yourself. So that is my mission. I'm here to help people connect with their deep inner selves and help Mm. them come out of the darkness of unconsciousness because shadow work isn't about the ways that we're bad. It's about the ways that we're unconscious. You say it so eloquently. Let's just end the episode here. That's perfect. Goodbye. That's perfect. (laughs) It's perfect. And and that's how I frame shadow work as well in terms of this is a self-love thing. This is finding out what's going on under the surface. Not so you can find out what's wrong with you. But so you can embrace what is there, what is. Yeah, absolutely. Find the gold in the shadow, as a lot of Jungian writers discuss. There's so many things that we have stuffed away that that are actually really positive, good things about us, but we hide those things even from ourselves because it's a little scary to be great at something or to stand out or to be unique. And so we learn as children to kind of stuff that down and dim our light. And I'm here to help people undo that dimming and and become the radiant beings that we all really are under the surface. If we can be brave enough to reveal that to both ourselves and the world at large. Mm -hmm. I love how laser focused you are on this work too. And something you just said that's interesting to me too is we hide those parts of ourselves that are unique. We don't want to stand out. And I think that that can sometimes start with our parents. And I think it's really important. Well, it might just be a phase. I was going to say it's important not to like be hard on your parents, but I know a lot of us go through that phase where like everything that's wrong with us is all their fault. But I think about the first people who might be frightened by our uniqueness and our specialness might be well-meaning parents. It, you know, you have this kid that seems like they're from another planet They and you want to protect them and keep them safe. And I think that that can end up not purpose, not on purpose, but accidentally like pushing some great gifts into the shadows. Absolutely. So the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and it does. It comes from that, that knee-jerk pro- protective place that a lot of parents have. They know how the world works. They know how cruel it can be. And so they're trying to prevent their children from ever having to experience that pain of exposure, that pain of being laughed at or ridiculed or whatever the story may be. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's also driven by jealousy in the parent. And other times it's also the parent is really, really good at something and, you know, has like an ownership of that particular thing and won't let their children participate in it. There's all sorts of reasons for it. But yes, it all everything with your shadow starts in childhood because your shadow and your ego are siblings. They are brother and sister or sister and sister or brother and brother. They grow up uh, simultaneously as ego is developing, shadow is developing right alongside it. And that's just part of the child development, honestly. And it's something we all go through and therefore we all have a shadow. It's, it's, that's the other thing I'm here to help people understand. It isn't just bad people who have shadows. Every person has a shadow. Absolutely, yes. And I actually love the terminology because it's, Simple and clear. (laughs) Everywhere you go, you bring your shadow with you. And I mean that in terms of the light, right? Like we all have a shadow and you can see it at different lengths at different times of the day. So I really appreciate the metaphor of it. I feel like in this particular case, the label is well suited to what we're talking about. Absolutely. It really is. And it goes so well with being a witch because... We're all about the metaphors and nature, and there are nature metaphors built right into shadow work. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I think that witches and pagans are particularly well-suited to this kind of psychological, psycho-spiritual work, because at the get-go, there's already an acceptance of, you know, I have a dark side. Mm. <laughs> 
often drawn to the witchy aesthetic because we like that, those darker qualities. And so it's a lot easier to start doing the work, whereas other, other spiritual paths, and I am no way intended to disparage any spiritual path, but some of them are, they get into that kind of toxic positivity where, you know, I can't acknowledge I have a shadow because that's a negative mindset and, you know, bad things will happen to me if I focus on that. And so they kind of just keep stuffing stuff back into their shadow more and more, all while being, you know, all love and light all the time. And it, it just does, life doesn't work that way. I think the movie Inside Out is a great way to explain what I'm trying to refer to here, where Joy, the character, is basically a little bit of a tyrant. <laughs> Right. <laughs> You're making me laugh because I need to see this movie. I have not seen this movie. People refer me to this movie all the time. And somebody actually sent me a keychain of Joy, the character. And now hearing you frame it that way, I'm like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, I am a tyrant of joy. No, you really aren't, though, because you you're very balanced and everything I have heard in your podcasts and in your, your shadow love series, you, you're very balanced. You're not, you don't exclude the shadow the way Joy does. Joy pushes the shadow so far out of her realm that the entire psyche shuts down. Mm. It's a really great movie. I, I don't normally recommend movies because I have some opinions about how damaging movies can be for us. Oh, well, you um, have to talk about that because I'm a big movie lover. What do you mean? Oh, dear. <laughs> Just that your psyche cannot tell the difference between something that's happening on the screen and something that's happening to you in real life, your, your total psyche. Your conscious mind, of course, it knows, okay, I'm watching a movie, this isn't real. But your psyche, the whole of your unconscious mind, your conscious mind combined, can't tell the difference. And so basically everything you see in a movie, you are experiencing on some level psychologically, and it can be really damaging to people to watch, especially some of the more violent and, and difficult uh, subject matter movies and TV shows. Um, because again, your psyche doesn't know the difference. It thinks that just happened to it. So I think people are getting a, a bit of a collective PTSD if you get my drift. I and do. I, just, I mean, I think this is maybe perverse of me <laughs> to say you're not making me love movies any less. If anything, it makes me love them more because this fascinates me. This I'm really interested in media, marketing, propaganda, brainwashing. Like it's everywhere. It's everywhere. It's fascinating. And this is one of my primary interests as a witch is like, how do we interact with this in a way that's empowering and I've never heard somebody talk about like a collective PTSD experience but I totally can understand what you're saying that's super interesting yeah you, your psyche really does not know the difference that's why magic is such a powerful force because when you do a magical act to your psyche that's a real act even if there's if it's just symbolism and so in movies and television shows you're kind of engaging in a, an hour and a half long, two hour long experience where, you, you know, and this is one of the positive things of movies. You get to learn from other people's experience by watching it on your screen or even in a novel. A novel is the same thing. But on the other hand, you got to be really careful with what you choose to consume because, you know, I love me some Game of Thrones, but that can be really damaging to the psyche if you're not careful with how much you let that in. So Yeah, yeah. I was going through some stuff when that came out. I loved Game of Thrones, but it was it was triggering, as they say. It yeah. brought up some stuff for me. Yeah, I had to stop watching it, I think, in the third season. I was like, nope, I'm, I'm not going to do this to myself anymore. <laughs> mm. Mm -hmm. Well, how do you feel about horror because I know people who love horror and I'm not a horror fan but I've gotten to know I'm a fan of some horror fans I'll put it that way I've gotten to know and appreciate their love of it because for them 
they say it's healing and it's helping them process some stuff. Yeah, absolutely. There can be a catharsis there that's important. I think to kind of add on to this overall discussion, what happens is, is when you start to identify with a given character, then you are taking on those characters' experiences as though they were your own. This is all happening below the surface of your conscious awareness. I think that's the key to what I'm trying to say. And so for your unconscious mind, you are now that character having that experience. And yeah, for some people that can be uh, liberating, particularly if the character is able to fight back against the big bag nasty and, and win and survive. Um, I think it all depends on, on what it is that you're taking in. Mm-hmm. I heard Neil Gaiman talking about that recently. He was, maybe it was in his master class. He was talking about, he writes things for children that in the beginning he was told they were not appropriate. And he was like, but these things help kids. Children deal yeah. with death. Children deal with frightening things. And so I tell stories about that because it helps kids process it. And I had never had that thought before, but it's interesting. Yeah. Coraline is a good example of that, particularly for kids who have abusive parents. Mm. Wow. This is thrilling. I love this subject. This is why I was so excited to bring you on because I knew no matter what direction we went in, it would be interesting. (laughs) Can we unpack some terminology? Because this is something I have found happens a lot. Like people talk We say things like transpersonal psychology or depth psychology or even shadow work or psyche. And I feel like there are many of us who understand what these terms mean, but then we kind of leave out in the cold the people who don't know and want to know but are afraid to ask. So can we unpack some of that for them? Absolutely. Okay, so let's just start with transpersonal psychology and depth psychology. Okay. So transpersonal psychology is, it takes the whole of psychology as it exists, and then it adds the spiritual layer to it. It adds the transpersonal layer to it, which is kind of a loose, difficult, slippery term sometimes. But basically, it's the part of our psyche that transcends our limited ego consciousness, it, it explores all the different ways that we connect with something greater than ourselves and our fundamental need to do so. Our fundamental need. That's a fundamental need, you're saying. Yes. It, it, we have a lot of atheists in the world, and that's okay. Howsoever, it is a basic need of all humans, regardless of culture or history, to be able to feel connected to something greater than themselves. And that could be nature. Yes. Or science. I'm reading Angels and Demons by Dan Brown right now, and that's a point of discussion in the book is, you know, something greater than yourselves. It could be a religion. It could be God, but it also could be science. It could. It could be the frontiers of physics. I I think a lot of physicists end up having transpersonal experiences, which are those peak moments in life when we feel that connection with that something that that we call by different names. Mm. Uh, They have those experiences and it it helps even further their their work in the field, chemistry, all the sciences. Yeah, absolutely. And then depth psychology. Depth psychology is trying to look at, okay, let me, let me start from what is not depth psychology and then we'll go from there. Okay. Um, so what most people experience when they go have uh, a therapy appointment with a therapist is some variety of cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is very important. It's great. I love it. But it really only focuses on the surface level of of a person's life. It tries to help them deal with the external world effectively and skillfully. Depth psychology 
is more interested in helping people deal with the internal world and, and learn to basically connect with their soul and, and learn the entirety of their psyche. And we'll, we'll unpack that term as well. The depth psychologists begin with Freud, who was very, very interested in unconscious behavior. And this is another key hallmark of depth psychology is, is looking at and exploring the unconscious parts of the mind. Um, and then from him, he generated lots and lots of, of students who went on to form their own branches of psychology. So Carl Jung is uh, a big one, Alfred Adler, so on and so forth, Eric Erickson. These are all old names. These people lived in the late 1800s and into the early 20th century. So a lot of people might be like, who are you talking about? But most people have heard of Freud and, and a lot of people have heard of Jung. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. probably most people listening right now have heard of Jung. Yeah. Somehow he's like an honorary witch. He is. He's a shaman. He's uh, one of the, my favorite ideas from him. It, it's like written in the foreword of one of his books. He talks about how psychotherapists are the new clergy. Oh, well, yeah. that explains a lot, actually, in terms of the church having an issue with it for a very long time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> that that makes some sense. <laughs> I've had some family members who were in need of a therapist, and it was really interesting to me just the discussion around that. My My nephew is studying to be a psychologist at a Christian church. So it's okay. blending, it's blending now, but it's really interesting to me to think about like, well, what do you include and what do you exclude if you're coming at it from a Christian paradigm? Yeah. And interestingly, if you want to tell your, um, your nephew about this, Young was a, basically a Christian mystic. If you look at his red book material um, and, and really study him in depth, he, he was, yeah, a Christian mystic is a, a really good way to put it. Nice. Okay, so psyche. So psyche. Psyche basically means soul. The word itself means soul. And it is the totality of your entire mind, your unconscious mind, your conscious mind, your ego, all of these other things swim in the sea of psyche. Psyche was also a Greek goddess who fell in love with Eros, love, right? And she had to go through all these trials and tribulations to to become uh, basically able to live, knowing what she knew, having seen love's face. And so psyche is the whole of who you are. It is is your soul, your spirit, your, your ego, your conscious mind, your unconscious mind, all of it. And your body. I always think of the body as being a very important part of the soul. And I know not everybody thinks that way, but it's been really helpful for me. And something that allows me to land on a belief like that is, is it useful? Does it empower me? And I have found that when I think about accessing the soul and receiving messages for my soul through my body, it's so useful. Absolutely. And I personally agree with you. Um, If you look at Jung's writings directly, he talks about something, a term he he says, psychoid. It's psyche with O-I-D at the end of it. And he's like, it's this fuzzy area where, where psyche starts to fizzle into matter. And so you don't have, I think what he was trying to say is you don't have direct conscious control over things like peristalsis in your digestive system or you have some limited control over your heart rate and your blood pressure but not full conscious control and so he was trying to separate it out that way but I agree with you I think this is one of the ways that Jung was wrong I think we are here to have a spiritual experience in an embodied way the more embodied we are the less unconscious we are when you get triggered I know this for me personally is true. I jump into my head. I become a walking, talking brain, and the rest of my body is just kind of cut off and numb. 
Um, that is me. You just described me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you oh, find that that is everyone? Is that common to everyone or is that a particular kind of person? Because I usually relate it to people who are just very, very sensitive or who have experienced trauma or both. We learn to escape into our heads, but maybe it's just a human thing. Yeah, I think on some level, I th- ev- nothing is ever like a yes or a no. Everything is always on a gradient. And so it's it's a spectrum. For some people, we, we jump into our heads much more easily because of that trauma um, and because of that sensitivity. But I think all people, to some extent, have that phenomenon. It's, it's, it's a, a defense mechanism. It's dissociation, essentially. And it, it's a, a very useful uh, dissociation as a tool, as a defense mechanism. If you meet a a bear in the middle of the woods, you need to be running, and that's the end of that. <laughs> so, yeah, it's wow. It's hard hard for me to say though. With anything at this point, it's a question I'm currently really musing on: is what is truly universal for humans, and what is local and specific. Yeah. Yeah. Well, being the mother to a son with autism, a very extreme version, I would say, of autism has taught me just do not assume anything about people. (laughs) Some people are just wired so differently and experience the world in such a unique way that all you can do to connect with them is just be very present and listen and pay attention. Be very embodied, I would say stay in your center and be very embodied for them. Yeah. Yes. This idea of embodiment is so powerful and something I've played a lot around with over the years is this idea of a descension process instead of an ascension process, like Mm -hmm. coming down into the body and being present. And you are articulating that in such a lovely way. Oh, thank you. Mm -hmm. That's what's been healing for me. It's no sweat for me to like shoot way up into the upper chakras and just be like, woohoo, I am not a body. I'm just this floating cloud balloon thing that has lots of ideas and coming down into my body has been literally painful. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's excruciating sometimes. And that's why in my book I'm writing now, one of the major sections is about body work as shadow work. And so um, I recommend uh, for a lot of people to get into a very specific style of yoga, um, yin yoga. So this is not the kind of yoga where you're trying to stand on your head or look like the model on the cover of yoga magazine or anything like that. This is getting into postures and staying in those postures for up to 12 minutes in some cases. Like I will forward fold and just stay there. And then what I do is I stay very present with basically every cell in my body. And I, as I breathe in, I just say to it, I'm here now. I'm sorry. I wasn't here before, but I'm here now. Whatever you need to release, we're, we're here to release it right now. And so stuff comes up out of my musculature And I feel those feelings that I never allowed myself to feel when they were happening, but now I'm safe. I do this in a very ritual way. I light incense and candles. I cast a circle and I I make it part of my devotional practice. And I just spend about an hour and a half moving through these, these very slow postures um, and letting whatever needs to come up, come up. And then as it comes up, I just sit with it. I breathe and I breathe it out and I release it and I let it go. I'm getting so flipping keyed up right now and you're so calm. (laughs) But you'll say something and my mind just goes, woo, in a million different directions. It's just so exciting what you're saying. I, I just love the possibilities of what you're saying. Like this is a form of self-parenting to say I'm here now and to be there for every little cell in your body. I kind of think that we are a microcosm of the macrocosm. We are the God or the CEO of our own little world, which is our own body. And 
communicating in the way that you just expressed and saying like, I'm here now, here we are. I'm sorry that I wasn't here before. I'm going to be fully present. Let me know what you have to say and process, I think is so exciting and cool. Yeah, it, it's um, like I said, it's part of my devotional practice. And it's really an act of, like you said, of self-parenting and self-love. There's a lot of stuff that we trap in our bodies that we just, we don't process at the time it's happening because it's too much. It's overwhelming. And, and so, yeah, you spend this time to let go of that and, and just be with what is. And you are a certified Kundalini yoga instructor as well. Yes. Yes, I did my training back in um, 2007. 2008. I actually don't practice Kundalini anymore. I just do yin now. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What drew you to Kundalini? Well, uh, I have Crohn's disease and I had gone through a very serious flare in the mid early 2000s. And as I started to get healthy again and come out of that flare, Um, I knew I needed to do some body work and and at very least regain strength because I had dropped down to about 92, 93 pounds. Mm. And so initially it was just, this seems like a cool way for me to, um, to get my strength back. And Kundalini was like one of the only styles of yoga that was available to me in the area that I lived. And I remember leaving my first or second class and feeling this incredible sense of warmth in my belly. And for me to feel anything positive or good in my belly was like a revelation. It was like, whoa, this is magic. (laughs) Mm, mm -hmm. Kundalini is pretty magical. I think of it as its own kind of different thing, separate from other forms of yoga that I'm familiar with. Yeah, I agree. The The Kriya system that they use are almost like magic spells. There's a Kriya for everything. There's a Kriya for self-love and a Kriya for releasing anger and a Kriya to win the lottery. I'm, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> well, now you have to tell us what a Kriya is. Uh, yes, yeah, so a Kriya is basically like a recipe. It's a yoga recipe, basically, where you go through a Kundalini yoga book that the teachers buy. We have tons and tons of them. And you find the recipe for whatever topic you want to deal with. And you do the the recipe, you do the Kriya, which includes usually pranayama, which is breathing exercises. It includes the asana, which is what most people think of when they think of yoga. That's the physical postures. It often includes chanting and always includes meditation. So all of these ingredients get stirred up in the, in the pot you, you do the Kriya and you gain the benefits of what the Kriya was intended for. Is there something about Kundalini that turned you off or you just gravitated toward Yin? Um, yes. Yeah. So about that. <laughs> I have um, to ask. I'm so, I'm so curious about you, Jennifer. You're such an interesting person. <laughs> I'm like, how much can I cram into an hour long interview? Um, Kundalini yoga can get a little cultish. And so I started to have difficulties with some of the increasing, like, um, they recommend that you only wear white. And I began to think that that was a way to separate yourself from the rest of humanity, which I kind of had a problem with. Um, they recommend you wear a turban When you get into the teacher training, they change your name. There's just certain aspects of it that got a little too cultish for me. Mm -hmm. And so I had to kind of back off from that and, and head in a different direction. It's so interesting because I know people that have no familiarity with witchcraft would just be like, what are you talking about? You're a witch. You're a pagan. Aren't you in a cult? (laughs) no (laughs) (laughs) paganism witchcraft i think is one of the most individualistic religions i can think of you pretty much forge your own path get lost in your own woods and 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 connect with your divinity you know in whatever way works for you and yeah it's like 
anti-cult, actually. <laughs> mm, mm, yes, yes. Lost in your own woods. What is, oh gosh, I'm forgetting the name of it. Grove, Grove of the Three Crows. Uh, Grove of the Three Crows. That is my little pagan group, actually. I created a American Celtic pagan group about a year and a half ago on the urging of my goddess, which is the Morrigan. And I know that can bring up a whole bunch of stuff for people because people have a lot of misconceptions about her as a goddess. But um, yeah, that's what I did. And also we are in the process of uh, building a retreat center uh, where people can come basically for pagan festivals. And even if it's not festival time, um, our intention is to have a bunch of tiny houses where people can come very inexpensively and just kind of disconnect from the hustle and bustle of the external world and, and reconnect with their soul. That um, is so exciting. Where Where is this? Virginia. We are in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. Mm. There's a guy yeah. named Rob Bilt. It's Rob, like the name, Rob and Bilt. But if you take one B out and smush those two words together, he's Rob Bilt on YouTube. And he has been creating a tiny house community. So I would just like to recommend that to you because he's my favorite yeah. YouTube channel in the last year. And I think it's thrilling that people are doing this. The tiny house movement is really cool. But then to build like a tiny house village or a retreat center is is awesome. Yeah, I just, I think we all collectively sense in, in our collective unconscious mind, uh, which is a thing, um, that it's time to simplify, that we have gotten very greedy and, and um, complicated. And, you know, I know people who have built houses that have been 3,800 square feet for two people. And it, it's just, it's it's a bit much. So... I think that tiny house movement is, is an in instinctive urge to kind of simplify basically mm -hmm. and get back to a little more basic, uh, basic style of living to be more ecological too. You know, tiny houses are great because they don't contribute quite so much to ecological decline as, as a really big house would just energy cost alone is one way. Nice. That's true. Yeah. Circling back on the Morrigan, I feel like she's a really popular modern goddess in, in modern witchcraft. Has that not been your experience? It's been very mixed. She's been very popular for, I would say, the last 10 years or so. But when I mentioned the Morrigan in the late 90s, people would say, oh, no, you must stay away from her. She's dark goddess. <laughs> mm, mm. And, and also, um, you know, one of the things that she has me working with people to understand is, is most people immediately think goddess of war. And she says to me, she says, Jennifer, I am as much a goddess of peace as I am a goddess of war. I am both sides of the coin. So, yeah, in order to have peace, you have to understand conflict. You have to be able to manage conflict to avoid war. I think she's more a goddess of of sovereignty and prophecy and magic than anything else and transformation. She's the one who really kicked me with the shadow work stuff. She's like, you, you have this degree, you have this understanding, you've got to write a book. People need to be doing shadow work. <laughs> when you talk about she, like she guided me to do this or she told me, can you explain what that's like experientially for people who do not work with personified deity or don't even believe in it okay for those people how do I explain that's going to be difficult to explain oh, yes actually I can so from a psychological point of view in the unconscious mind of all human beings live archetypes these are these are, for anybody educated listening who's into philosophy, these are very much like Plato's ideal forms. They're basic patterns of energy. The, the, the mother is an archetype. You don't have to read about the mother in a book to automatically, instinctively know what a mother is as a human being. Your psyche is populated with 
dozens and dozens of these these patterns, these entities, they they are autonomous and they do have the power to hijack a human. Possession is another word sometimes. Sometimes an archetype can just come in and seize you. This happens when people get triggered. Anytime you hear somebody talk about, oh, I wasn't myself when I said that, or I wasn't myself when I did that. When I killed that person. Yep. Or, or when, I, when I drank, you know, 18 bottles of wine on that night and said stupid things or, you know, whatever it is. When you feel like you weren't yourself when you did something, that's usually an indication an archetype has come and and taken over your body and your mind for a little while. And so that's that's a good way for for non-spiritual people to try and understand what it's like to work with a goddess or, or god. They are archetypes. And then I know people who are pagan or religious or spiritual, and they they hear me say that, and they're like, Oh no no they're real. And I, I nod my head. Yes, they're they're real. Just because something is psychological doesn't make it unreal. So yes, and imagination is real, archetypes are real. I don't know how far into believing I go. I'm open to the possibilities. I'm not sure. Like I worked with Athena, for example. And for years, I would say, I'm not a goddessy witch. I don't believe in God as, as an entity, as a sentient being. I don't believe in that. So why would I believe in a goddess? And then I don't know what happened. I blame witchcraft. <laughs> I started working with this energy and there was something about it that felt... It did not feel like it was coming entirely from myself. It felt like a communication, like there was an energetic exchange. And then later I started working with Saturn in a similar way. And those two still hang with me, but I have a very difficult time articulating what that experience is like. Yeah, it it's it it by definition being a spiritual thing, it's it's difficult to put in words. And if you look at all of the mystics who have ever discussed these things throughout the ages, they all say the same thing. This is very difficult to put in words. It's experiential. You have to have lived through the experience to truly understand it. I come from a very shamanic point of view at this point where I see spirit in everything. And I have a relationship with those spirits in everything. So there's a spirit in my refrigerator. Mm. <laughs> there's there's a spirit in, in the earth. I connect to that energy all the time. The world is alive and animated to me. And I think it's it's our materialistic paradigm that that came out of philosophy and then shaped our thought collectively that makes us think otherwise and I think when we reconnect with that understanding that there's a spirit in everything we start to treat the world around us with much more reverence and respect and we know we're again connected to that transpersonal realm where we know that we're part of something greater than ourselves and there's relationships to be had with the tree outside your window or I have a cat who um, is a full-on wild cat. I can tell this cat's not even feral. He has never known humans, and I've been slowly building a relationship with him over the course of several months. Um, oh, my gosh. That's in Shadow Love. That's one of my favorite metaphors for approaching the shadow. Isn't it so similar, building that trust? Yeah, because your, sh- your shadow figures because your shadow is not just one thing, it's many things. They all have, have little spirits, little sparks of your own soul, really. And you do, you have to approach them and, and build trust with them over time to get them to start opening up and talking to you. So, And that, that, that kind of loops back to the, the speaking with the Morrigan question. One thing that I teach my students and am working to include in this book is how to connect via your imagination 
to all of your different shadow figures and connect to all the different spirits that populate your particular ecosystem. The imagination is a very powerful tool that we as humans have. Nothing we have in our world right now could exist if we didn't have imagination. So to say to somebody, oh, that's just your imagination is actually a harmful thing to say because the imagination is a sacred and important part of who we all are. And it is the way in which we connect with everything and and our spiritual practice in particular. Christopher Penzak, the uh, Inner Temple of Witchcraft, I think, talks about this quite a lot. And there's other sources I can point to as well. But basically, that's, that's your interface with the spirit world. And so I teach people to journey to, it's funny, in, in the occult and, and spiritual community, we have so many different terms that are all basically talking about the same thing. Yeah, yeah. But I teach people to journey or do a path working or do an astral projection. And in, in Jungian psychology, the technique is actually called active imagination. Mm-hmm. And it is something many Jungian therapists will actually prescribe their patients to do. So... Um, And in dream work as well, I think I told you I had this dream where I kept choking on this giant wad of gum. I was just like I had so much gum in my mouth and I couldn't get it out. It was a terrible, terrible dream. And the dream kept happening. It was recurring. And finally, I said to my therapist, I'm like, "What, what is this about? And she's like, well, let's do an active imagination with it. And she got me, you know, calm and centered and a little bit in a trance state. And said, all right, now become the gum. And, you know, I giggled a little bit because now I'm seeing this half-chewed wad of gum with a face on it like it's a cartoon. And, you know, we're having fun. And she says to the gum, she says, what do you want Jennifer to know? And the response was so fast. And I I came out of my mouth. I said, she bites off more than she can chew. (laughs) (laughs) And I I just love it. That's the technique. You know, it's fun. I learned active imagination in method acting, which I learned way before I ever discovered witchcraft. And then in discovering witchcraft, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so cool because I have a history with method acting, even a history with Christianity. I can see relationships. And then I had a long history with personal development and psychology and it all kind of came together with witchcraft but what's fun about it is what you were saying is how you know we use different terms to talk about the same things I enjoy that because it rounds out my understanding when I hear other people from other traditions describe it in different terms yeah absolutely Absolutely. It's a very powerful technique. And that's how you can connect to those archetypes, to those gods and goddesses. And in shadow work, it's a really powerful tool. So if you are having a struggle where you just keep making the same mistake over and over again, or you keep finding yourself in the same state of feeling that you don't want to feel that way anymore, you basically, the first step is to give that shadow figure um, a name. And witchcraft, knowing something's name is is power. And so step one, give it a name, and then you bring it into your inner temple. I uh, often teach basically like a an inner throne room where it's your castle. You are the sovereign. And you're in charge in that place. And so you, you bring this shadow figure into that throne room with its name, and you, you start asking it. You say, you know... What wound are you? What healing do you need? What do you need is the most powerful question to ask a shadow figure because anytime it's acting out through you, it's trying to get your attention, trying to get you to heal it. Mm. So if you can begin a dialogue with it, you can really discover what you really need instead of just continuing on the same path and continuing to make the same mistake again and again. Your book is going to be awesome. I can't wait till I have it finished. I think I'm 
going to be finished with the first draft of it this summer. And then through a series of synchronicities, I have settled on the publisher I'm going to approach first, which is Inner Traditions. I just was led to that publisher and I was like, right, this seems like the right one. And yeah, I can't wait for it either because I, I just, I want to help people connect with themselves and, and learn how to love themselves. I know the world will become a better place if, if people can do that. Mm-hmm. And people don't have to wait for your book. I saw on your website, you have, is this a workshop coming up? Beginning shadow work, reclaiming projections. Yes, yes. I'm planning that hopefully for, um, depending on what's going on with our retreat center. So I, again, I bite off more than I can chew, right? So I've got several major projects that I'm juggling all at the same time, but I'm hoping to have that for the Scorpio new moon. Mm. Uh, I feel like that's going to be a really good time to launch that. So, uh, but if not, then my inner self is kind of like probably more likely over the summer. So stay tuned. Follow me on Twitter. I always post updates there. Oh, just follow Jennifer on Twitter anyway, because you post such great things. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's how we ended up in this conversation, because I was like, she is so wise and so conversational. Like Twitter is for having a conversation. Some people do not understand that, but that's what's so great about it is you can click with somebody and strike up a conversation, a meaningful conversation. I think it's really powerful. I agree. I avoided Twitter for so long and I'm, I'm glad that I'm there now because I, it's way better than I ever thought it would be. Yeah. I'm going to have to drag you back on the podcast when your book comes out, because I don't know how all this time went by. I want to be able to point people that are listening on the go to your website. So how do they, how do they find you? I'm going to link to you. I'm going to link to your Twitter. I'm going to link to your website, but just for people that are listening. Yeah, it's fairly easy. It's jenniferhillphd.com. Okay. Yay. Well, speaking of Twitter, I saw you have a conversation, I think with Becca, one of my favorite Twitter people. She was talking about the middle pillar, I think, and the solar cross. And you said, I do both every single day. And I wrote that down to ask you about like every single day. Yes, every single day. It only takes five minutes. It seems like it's a very in-depth ritual. If you've been doing it a long time, especially, it only takes like five minutes. And I don't even do it physically. I do it again in that inner mind space in my throne room every morning. Um, And I do a modified version. So it's really funny to me. This is going to be a little convoluted, so bear with me. But um, there's a book that just came out called Priestess of the Morrigan. And I just started cackling when I was reading it because... The author is very obviously getting the same exact message I am from the same entity because the Morrigan had me modify the middle pillar and the lesser banishing ritual using her various goddess names because the Morrigan is actually several goddesses in one. And she had me do that like a year and a half ago. And I've been practicing that every day ever since. And then I find the same exact thing written in this book that just came out January 7th. And I just, I laughed. That's so cool. Talking to us all. (laughs) That makes me think of soul tribes. Sometimes I think there might be something like a soul tribe where you just recognize somebody, you recognize like their language and their journey as being resonant with your own. I have found plenty of people on Twitter that way where I was like, no way. I had that thought. It was an original thought. I swear. (laughs) Yeah, I I agree with that wholeheartedly. And it actually brings to mind, um, again, Christopher Penzak. He has a book called Ascension Magic. And in the, the first quarter of it, I think he talks about the monad, which is a, a cere- another ceremonial magic idea. And it, it is basically a, a group of people who are all kind of weaving around uh, a given soul tribe, basically. So yeah, you, it, it's, a, it's a thing. Mm. I can attest. It's a thing. Yay. <laughs> this was really fascinating. I'm excited for people to go rushing to your Twitter and be like, hello, introduce yourself to Jennifer. Say hello because she's super friendly. 
and yes. and interesting. And that's what Twitter is for. But before I let you go, can you please share with us one tip you have for creating the kick-ass life of your dreams? Yes, I can actually. Choose your own adventure. Get inside your mindscape. Go on, on internal journeys and weave your life from the wisdom that you discover inside. Oh, inside out. Yeah. (laughs) Nice. I love it. Thank you so much, Jennifer. Yeah, thank you, honey. That's it, my friends. Make sure you pop on over to say hi to Jennifer on Twitter. If you're on Twitter, why aren't you on Twitter if you're not on Twitter? Don't you know? Don't you know that's where the hippie witch hangs out? (laughs) I do love Twitter, and I've taken to using it as an alternative to Instagram. I have figured out I can post a little series of photographs for my life. That's my new favorite thing to do on Twitter, like to go on a walk with the kid and take some pictures and then post them on Twitter. I don't know. I do. I just, I have Twitter brain. That's how my brain works. I love it there. That's how I got to know Jennifer. That's how I've gotten to know so many of you all. If you're not on Twitter, just go check out her website, Give her a shout, and until we meet again, happy shadow working, a blessed imulk slash candle moss slash groundhog day to you. Much love. Peace. <laughs>